0: Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic, overseeing our toxic phase one and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Sarah Vidge, a urologist and director of the Center for Male Fertility at Cleveland Clinic. She's here today to talk about fertility preservation in male patients with cancer. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So maybe just to start off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what your role is here at Cleveland Clinic.
1: I'm a urologist. I specialize in male infertility and sexual medicine. And I'm the center director for our fertility center here. Um, So I see, you know, the majority of my practice is male patients coming in with infertility. Um, so I do see a lot of uh, fertility preservation patients for various reasons as well. You know, most of whom are you know, have a cancer diagnosis. That's a very common
0: scenario. So maybe to start out, give us an overview. What are some of the fertility preservation techniques for uh, males with cancer?
1: Fortunately, you know, getting sperm from a male in most situations is relatively straightforward. So if it's a post-pubertal patient. Um, and the male is able to provide an ejaculated sample uh, with masturbation, then, you know, we're able to cryopreserve from the semen. So for most of our patients, it's relatively straightforward. um, And we'll get into, I'm sure, you know, what to do in situations where uh, patients are unable to do that. Uh, In many situations, they'll collect uh, more than one time. We have a lab on site, they can collect in the lab, we can also make arrangements for them to collect at home if there's anxiety related to that. And we really sort of try to work around, you know, their schedule, come in on the weekend if we have to, to make sure that this gets done uh, in a timely fashion ahead of their treatment you know, initiation.
0: So when we talk about the timing part, tell me a little bit about that. What, what sort of timing do you typically need? If I see a patient in clinic and I need to start chemo, what kind of lead time do I need?
1: Really very little. Uh, We can get it done same day. Our andrology colleagues are are very flexible around this issue because it's really, really important. Um, And a lot of patients don't bank for a lot of different reasons, and we certainly don't want access to be one of them. We can get it done same day. If the patient's starting their therapy the following day and there's really not much wiggle room there, we may not be able to get them to bank more than once. You know, That's one thing to consider. And then the other thing is, um, when a male provides a semen specimen, to get an optimal sample, the abstinence interval, meaning time since their last ejaculation should be about two to three days. So, you know, we don't always have the luxury of timing that. Um, but again, in this situation, we're, we're trying to do the best we can. And unfortunately, if we freeze just a small number of sperm, uh, 10, 20, 30 sperm, these guys have options down the line to have a biological
0: child. And you mentioned something about trying to get a second collection. So, once someone has started chemo, is collection off the table, or is there a time frame where, if you really can try to sneak in a second one you try to do that?
1: So it's a little bit controversial, but in general, if the patient just started treatment, there's, there's probably a small window of time where a second collection is, is totally reasonable. Um, you know, if they've been on chemotherapy for two, three, four, or five weeks, um, at that point it's probably not advisable. But if the first sample looks poor, they got their first dose of chemotherapy that morning. I would probably have them try to collect a second time. You know, the, the likelihood that it's impaired, the quality of the sperm, that quickly is pretty low. But there are there are some urologists who would say, you know, the moment the chemotherapy has started, you know, we should not collect.
0: So we'll we'll end up talking a little bit more about the finance part here in a bit. But certainly, as I try to start chemo, I have limitations in terms of coverage, but. That's a little bit different with this, isn't it, in terms of the available coverages and how this is covered. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So unfortunately, all things related to fertility, our insurance companies are not are not kind to us. Um, it's sort of treated like almost like cosmetic intervention, um, which of course it's not. So I have to say the coverage seems to be getting better. We always use specific coding related to fertility testing and their cancer diagnosis to increase our likelihood of getting coverage. If, if you diagnose them with infertility, that sometimes that alone sort of that's where it stops. So um, we make sure we code it accurately. And again, there is some coverage. We do have financial counselors that the patients can work with, you know, in real time to determine what their out-of-pocket payment is, but. In general, the cash payment, you know, if the patient has no coverage, looking at about um, $900 for the initial bank, about $700 for any subsequent banks, and then they pay an annual fee for as long as those samples are stored. And, you know, some young patients may have their samples stored for 10, 15 years. That's just another sort of financial thing for them to think about.
0: Makes sense. You mentioned that there are other options for. In other situations where someone can't necessarily collect sperm, what are some of those options?
1: So sometimes it's just a situational issue. Um, You know, they're having trouble collecting in the lab, or maybe they're having you know difficulty getting an erection. We can use medications like Viagra Cialis, have them collect at home. We actually have specialized condom collection devices so they can collect during intercourse. The specialized condom that's not damaging to the sample, and then they just tie it up and and bring it in. Um, So we do have some flexibility there if. If, you know, some of these patients are quite ill, and so, you know, just being able to to ejaculate is just not something that's going to happen. And so in those, in those situations, we have a few different options. One is uh, penile vibratory stimulation. So this is a, an intervention that we use actually uh, relatively commonly in our spinal cord injury patients. And it, it's essentially a, a vibrating device that's uh, placed on the head of the penis, and it can initiate the um, ejaculatory reflex arc. It works with the flaccid penis, so if the patient can't get an erection, um, it's still an option. The problem with it is it, it can be painful. So that's why it, it, it suits well for the spinal cord injury patients because they're generally not sensate. But you know, in a, in a young cancer patient, it may not it may not be successful. That's something that we can try. We, we have a device that we own, um, so if the patient's inpatient, you know, we can bring it over to the room or they can come over to my office. Much less commonly, there is an option to do what's called electroejaculation. We unfortunately don't have a machine here, so patients have to travel for this, and given the timeline with cancer patients, can't say I've actually ever pursued this, but it is an option. And it's similar sort of physiology, except there's a probe that goes in the rectum to initiate the reflex arc um, through the rectum. So again, we use this commonly in um, spinal cord injury patients, but in a sensate patient, they'd have to be put to sleep. So really not very practical in this patient population, but it, you know it is an option. And then maybe a little bit more commonly, what we will do is testicular biopsy for sperm extraction. So if the patient cannot provide a specimen. We can take them to the operating room. It's a pretty minimally invasive operation, a small incision in the scrotum, uh, open up the testicle and, and take some seminiferous tubules, which are the, the tubules in which spermatogenesis occurs. And we send those to our andrology lab. They um, mechanically digest the tubes, release the sperm into the tissue, and freeze from the tissue. So we probably do that maybe four to five times a year. Um, You know, patients who can't provide a specimen, often the CNS malignancy patients, it can be very difficult for them. Some patients are profoundly hypogonadal related to their cancer diagnosis. So it can be very difficult for them to have normal sexual function. So that's a scenario that comes up and it was a nice sort of backup option to have.
0: So when we think about a lot of the things you're talking about, I know those are readily available here on main campus. A lot of our cancer patients are treated out at our community sites. What what sort of resources are there um, at those sites?
1: The penile vibratory stimulation is really something that would have to be done here. We just don't have the device elsewhere. But again, that's not utilized that much in this patient population. Testicular biopsy really can be done anywhere. Um you know, I I do go to several places. I have a partner who's down in the southern region, and and really the procedure itself can be done by any you know urologist. Um, and and if it needs to be done, we'll make it work. The more limiting factor actually is the andrology piece, getting the specimen into the appropriate uh, fluid. It's it's preserved in what's called human tubular fluid, and then getting it transported in a timely fashion down to main campus. But using couriers, and again, the andrology lab is really sort of willing to drop everything to make these things work. So I can't say that those type of logistics have, have stopped us before. It does seem to be that these cases do tend to come up more commonly at Maine, but certainly we can we can make it work if if
0: we need to. So you know again, primarily focusing on sperm collection, what are the greatest access challenges? What what keeps people from getting to you?
1: I think one of the biggest barriers to getting this done more more commonly is finances. Um, so patients are given those numbers, and it's just not something that they can afford, and 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 that's sort of the end. And I always try to tell people, like, reach out to me, reach out to our department. We sometimes we do have some grant funding for our pediatric patients um, and young adults. So uh, patients under the age of twenty five, we have some funding to help cover that. And our department sometimes is able to sort of write it off because it's the right thing to do. You know, we don't always like to promise that, but. Um, I always do encourage, you know, the oncologist reach out to me directly. Um, we may be able to to work something out in a scenario where, where that's the major limiting factor. I, I, I get the sense that oncologists are doing a lot better than maybe 10, 20 years ago about bringing up fertility preservation. You know, I'm, I'm getting more and more consults every month. So I do think that it is being brought to the attention of the patients. And the other thing that I try to make clear, at least to our oncologists, is the visit with me is not actually the most critical piece unless the patient's really undecided and doesn't understand, you know, how the sperm can be used down the line and wants to know, you know, a lot more about that. It's really just getting them to the andrology lab and getting them to collect. Um, That's, that's the sort of time sensitive piece. And so, you know, if they're going through the call center and trying to get on my schedule and that kind of thing, then, then that's, you know, we don't want to do that. Getting them over to andrology is really a priority. And again, if they do need to have a discussion with me, I just do always encourage the you know referring team just contact me directly because again, these are time sensitive issues. And um, you know, I'm always happy to help. We have a fellowship here, so I you know I do have support and people who are you know boots on the ground at all times.
0: So it's good to hear that there is an increase in uh, in awareness, perhaps, and you know more of uh, more of my colleagues are sending people to to have collections. Does it still suggest there are educational opportunities to spread the word and, and let us know what's going on?
1: There is. I mean, there's there's definitely been publications that have come out within the last few years and doing surveys of patients and asking them, you know, did your provider discuss fertility preservation with you? And there's definitely still room for improvement. You know, it, it's, it's still not 100%, which it really should be. And I'm sure, you know, I'm not an oncologist, but I know there's a lot that you guys are balancing in these initial discussions. But the more that we can educate patients on on really how, for most of the time, really how simple it is. And even if they're not sure they want a family, apart from the cost, there's no risk in keeping that option open. I just saw a patient yesterday, it was a leukemia patient who did not bank. I don't, I don't recall the reasons, but he's, he's azospermic now. He has no sperm in his ejaculate and he's absolutely devastated. And those are just hard situations to to handle when it's after the fact. He's had a stem cell transplant. There's really no hope for return. And again, I don't know the reasons why he didn't, but always better to just sort of be on the, on the safe side in this situation.
0: Those are certainly tough things, and we can certainly send them to you to discuss some of those issues, but do you have any other support within your program? Any psychologist or anything that can help people work through kind of pros and cons of fertility preservation?
1: We don't have a psychology team that's focused specifically on this. There is a um, therapist that I work with commonly for a lot of my patients with, you know, concerns related to lack of fertility or sexual dysfunction. And that would be sort of more in the survivorship setting. Again, I have a fellow, um, there's myself and Neil Parick, who's a staff in the Southern region who's trained in, in fertility. So we do have enough sort of support, I think, on the physician side to have these conversations. And then again, my andrology colleagues are very experienced. Our lab's been up and running for um, over 20 years. You know, they can certainly provide counseling and they actually do go over the cryopreservation reports with some of our patients just so they understand sort of what the numbers mean. So, you know, having enough personnel on our, on our end is not a, a problem.
0: So we focused um, primarily on adult males. What, what are you doing on the prepubertal side?
1: Yeah, so that's a timely question. So we we have been working hard for a couple of years now to try to initiate a protocol that's active at several other major children's hospitals to cryopreserve prepubertal testicular tissue. Um, because prepubertal patients, their spermatogenesis has not been initiated that occurs at puberty and, and they're not masturbating, ejaculating. So, you know, you have a six-year-old patient with a cancer diagnosis who's going to get a, a very gonadotoxic regimen. The only option for fertility preservation for that patient would be to cryopreserve testicular tissue the same way I mentioned in an adult male. It's still sort of experimental. It's still in the research realm. It's been done in primates where the prepubertal tissue has been obtained and they've been able to in vitro generate mature sperm down the line from that tissue, from the stem cells and create a baby. Um, So that was sort of in the lay press, but we're not quite there yet uh, in humans, but I think we will be. The science is moving really quickly So, we are hoping that we're going to be able to open this um, to our prepubertal population soon. Uh, I'd say within the next three to six months, we did just receive a Velisano impact order to support this, that it's not at cost to our patients, given that it's experimental and not cheap. So we're really excited about this, and, and again hope that we can offer it soon. And then the other thing is, you know, a lot of peri-pubertal and post-pubertal patients are able to provide an ejaculate and have you know usable sperm. It may not be at the adult sort of uh, concentrations, but there is usable sperm. So the the older children, we have more options.
0: Are there any other approaches that are in the research phase that are particularly promising?
1: There's a lot of talk about how best to use that prepubertal tissue to generate mature sperm. So, there's a lot of different, different things that are being tried, as sort of in the laboratory setting, um, in the prepubertal realm. And then, in the, in the adult population, we're always trying to do better on cryopreserving really, really impaired samples. So, either a, an ejaculate or a testicular biopsy with very, very, very poor numbers, poor morphology, poor motility, low concentration. How can we improve our cryopreservation process to be sort of less hostile for the sperm and tend to have those samples be usable if that's kind of all we have? And then back to that leukemia patient who I mentioned who didn't bank, who now has nothing in the ejaculate, we can go in and do a microsurgical testicular biopsy on that patient population. Some patients do actually do okay in terms of their success rate. Testicular cancer patients tend to do the best. We're always trying to do better in terms of how we can identify seminiferous tubules where there may be still microscopic islands of spermatogenesis occurring that we can target. Right now, all we have is our microscope and our eye to try to identify sort of dilated tubules. But people are looking into, you know, ultrasound stains to identify tubules that may have active spermatogenesis occurring that we can harvest, um, you know, after the fact, after they've already had their gonadotoxic therapy to give those patients some hope.
0: So as people might be listening um, in terms of resources, you mentioned the co-op program for the prepubertal patients. Is this something that's fairly widely available right now or kind of limited to some um, well-defined centers? How how likely is it someone listening might be able to find a location for this for their patients?
1: Anything related to fertility preservation, we really will go go far to sort of make things work. So again, everything's sort of easier at main campus, but we can make this work really at, at any of our Northeast Ohio hospitals. There are protocols to to offer this at several major um, children's hospitals. So um, not, not not every single one, obviously, but sort of the major centers that do a lot of you know, pediatric oncology are trying to get these you know protocols up and running because it's really, you know, we feel the right thing to do to at least be able to offer it to patients.
0: So what's next for the program? How would you like to see this grow in the next few years?
1: So we're, we're still sort of working through, you know, given how large we are, the Cleveland Clinic, and, and as you mentioned, there's, you know, cancer care occurring all over the region now, we're still working on logistics to be able to offer these services in a timely fashion and easily. So, you know, we've looked into using Epic Orders to get the Fertility Preservation Consult uh, you know, over to me as fast as possible. And, you know, we realized that that was sometimes causing a delay because it, it it would need to get an appointment with me, which again, is not the most critical piece. And so just sort of trying to streamline how we can get these patients in so that a logistical issue is not ever what's preventing these patients from being unable to bank. Um, so if anyone has any ideas on that, I'm happy to take them. And, um, and what I always say is, is you know, I'm, I'm always available. So if, you know, you don't know how to place the banking order and they're over there, again, just call me because these are the kind of things that we don't want to not be able to pursue because, again, because of logistical problem. And then we always obviously are trying to grow. So, the more we can you know, have this discussion with patients, the better. The pediatric side has actually hired a fertility preservation social worker to be the kind of point person to make sure that all these patients are put in contact with her. She can help navigate with andrology, with myself, um, with the patients, with the families. You know, that may be something to consider on the adult side as well. So for the great majority of patients on the male side, banking is really quite simple. And so anything we can do to sort of remove barriers to it.
0: Excellent. Well, Sarah, thank you for your insight. You've provided some great information and quite honestly, I think probably reminders to people to get in contact and have the right discussions with patients. So appreciate that.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify,